kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday night. It's a little bit after six. Uh, welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. With me this evening is the best producer money can't buy, which is good because I don't actually pay him anything. Hi, very. How was Vape Fest? Wonderful. Wonderful. Good. Came back with a couple of new toys and <laughs> spent a lot of time talking to people. Yeah, well, that's good. I'm glad you had fun. So... And then, of course, you know, the EU and their subtle, ever-so-subtle announcement about let's throw smokers under the bus and let's get everybody vaping. That was... Well, that was just the UK. That was the I know. Faculty of Public Health. But, yeah. Still. <sighs> I guess it's normal. Yes, it's uh, it's their usual gambit. It's like, <laughs> let's... Let's... Uh, Let's see who we can annoy this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, public health's doing a great job. Um, yeah. And they're doing it globally. So, you know, they're always annoying someone. So I, I guess that's uh, that's their thing. <sighs> so uh, no genie this week, guys. Sorry. Um, wow. It, it's kind of been, it's kind of been up interesting if not horrible week and if you live anywhere in the United <laughs> States like Colorado um, you're probably pretty pissed off with the EPA right now which I can fully understand that oh come on when uh, are people actually happy with the EPA uh, I, yeah I, I don't but um, I, I do think it's really funny um and I'll, I'll drag up the letter in this article in a minute. But I do think it's funny that the EPA had been trying to lobby the people around the mines in Silverton for a really long time to turn the area into a Superfund site. Yeah. And their position has always been, well, yes, but toxins kind of leach into the water all the time. And if the aquifer is working right, then that small amount of toxins will be, you know, washed out of the water. And we can still conduct our business. Bullshit. And, <clears throat> Sorry. And, right. But, I mean, that's always been their position. 
Well, you've seen their water now, right? <laughs> yeah. it, it looks like a bowl of Kraft macaroni and cheese with that horrible orange powder. Yes. Right? That, that, was the, that was the brilliance of the EPA helping. They were helping with scare quotes, I guess, um, the way that they do. But, uh, yeah. So, anyway, the, this... Uh, Literature the editor predicted Colorado EPA spill one week before catastrophe. Last Wednesday, a small EPA supervised work crew inspecting the Gold King mine accidentally knocked a hole in a waste pit, releasing at least three millions and a hell of a lot more than that um, gallons of acidic liquid laden with toxic heavy metals. There's a letter to the editor, and I will stick it in the chat. Just because I think you probably need to see it was written by a geologist. It's it's there for you to peruse. I'll read it in a minute. Uh, yeah. The letter to the editor posted in the chat and written by Dave Taylor from Farmington, New Mexico, was published in the Silverton Standard and the minor local newspaper authored by a retired geologist one week before the EPA mine spell. The letter detailed verbatim how EPA officials would follow up the Animus River on purpose in order to secure Superfund money. If the Gold King mine was declared a Superfund site, it would essentially kill future development for the mining industry in the area. Uh, The EPA is vehemently opposed to mining and development. The EPA pushed for nearly 25 years to apply its Superfund program to the Gold King mine, If a leak occurred, the EPA would then receive Superfund status. That is exactly what happened. The EPA today admitted they misjudged pressure in the gold mine before the spill, just as this editorial predicted. Uh, The letter was included in their print edition on July 30th, 2015. The spill occurred one week later. EPA plan is really a Superfund blitzkrieg. Editor. I came to Silverton this summer to enjoy my retirement, appreciate nature, and prospect the mountains for unique minerals. I came here to enjoy a simple life with no TV and no politics, but unfortunately that has changed. Your EPA dilemma has caused my blood to boil. Based on my 47 years of experience as a professional geologist, it appears to me that the EPA is setting your town up and and the area up for a possible Superfund Blitzkrieg. In response to your meeting with the EPA on June 23rd, Mr. Hessmarks, EPA's representative, stated, We don't have an agenda, is either ignorant or naively <clears throat> or an outright falsehood. I'm certain Mr. Hessmarks, hydrologists, have advised him what's going to happen when the red and Boda portals and plugged portals and plugged and the grand experiment begins with the unknown and unforeseeable and possibly negative consequences. Here's the scenario that will occur based on my experience. Follow the plugging, the ex- the extra filling water will be retained behind the bulkheads accumulating at the rate of approximately 500 gallons per minute. As the water backs up, it will begin filling all connected mine workings and bedrock voids and fractures. As the water level inside the workings continues to rise, it will accumulate head pressure at a rate of 1 PSI per each 2.31 feet of vertical rise. As the water continues to mitigate through and fill interconnected workings, the pressure will increase. 
Eventually, without a doubt, the water will find a way out and will extricate uncontrollably through connected abandoned shafts, drift, race, and fractures, and possibly from talus on the hillsides. Initially, it will prepare that, appear that the, miner, the miracle fix is working. Hallelujah. This is very small. I really should have um, enlarged this a lot. But make no mistake, within 7 to 120 days, all of the 500 GPM flow will return to the cement creek. Contamination may actually increase due to disturbance and flushing action within the workings. The grand experiment, in my opinion, will fail. And guess what, Mr. Hesmark will say? Gee, plan A didn't work, so I guess we'll have to build a treatment plant at a cost to taxpayers of 100 to 500 million. Who knows? Reading between the lines, I believe that has been the EPA's plan all along. The proposed Red and Bonita plugging plan has been their way of getting a foot in the door to justify their hidden agenda for construction of a treatment plant. After all, with a budget of $8.2 billion and with 17,000 employees, the EPA needs new big projects to feed the best and justify their existence. I would recommend that anyone who owns a home, property, well, or spring in the Cement Creek drainage take water samples ASAP to protect themselves from groundwater changes that may be caused by the EPA plugging operation. God bless America, God bless Silverton, Colorado, and God protect us from the EPA. Dave Taylor, Farmington. So, yeah. They really have been on to this Superfund site for a really long time. They've really wanted one in the area. Not that oh, yeah. mining is any great thing. Go ahead. Well, yeah, it's... As he eloquently put it, yeah, the EPA just need to continue being the EPA. Uh, they have to keep, keep their jobs. Yeah, well, yeah, but they're also going to stifle development, which I guess they're okay with. Um, and I would probably be okay with it if they didn't try to do stupid shit like this. Navajos say the EPA should clean its bill rather than trying to swindle Indians. The EPA is trying to cheat Navajo Indians by getting them to sign away their rights to future claims from the agency's Gold King mine disaster tribal officials charged Wednesday adding more to the administration's public relations problems over the spill that threatens critical southwest waterways. EPA officials were going door-to-door asking Navajos, some of whom don't speak English as their primary language, to sign a form that offers to pay damages incurred so far from the spill, but waiving the right to come back and ask for more if their costs escalate or if they discover bigger problems. Navajo President Russell Begay told the Washington Times, It is understandable they're just trying to protect their pocketbook, Mr. Begay said in a telephone interview. Mr. Begay has promised a lawsuit on behalf of the Navajo Nation and said he suspects the EPA is trying to buy off as many Navajo as possible now to head off a bigger settlement later. The spill has dumped millions of gallons of polluted wastewater into the Animas River, which feeds to the San Juan River and eventually the Colorado River, which provides water for grazing and crops for much of the Four Corners area. The quadrupoint of Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah. The Navajo Nation covers much of that territory. The EPA did not have an immediate comment on Mr. Begay's charges Wednesday. In a press conference in Durango, Colorado, agency administrator Gina McCarthy called the spill heartbreaking and pledged to work with tribal officials to get control of the spill. We want everything to be transparent, she said. 
She said officials were following the standard federal claims process for those who said they were damaged from the spill. Representative Bob Bishop, Utah Republican and chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee, said through a spokeswoman that he has heard complaints from the Navajo Nation and that his panel will investigate the entire disaster. Chairman Bishop is outraged at reports the EPA is asking tribal members to sacrifice their rights after the EPA's ineptitude has potentially threatened their health and livelihoods. Spokeswoman Julia Bell Slingsby said... People are suffering because of EPA's negligence, and yet the federal government's response is not to help, but to engage in grasping for legal cover before the full extent of the damage is known to the Navajo farmers. She said the EPA would come down hard on a private property that private party that tries the same tactics and demanded to know why the Interior Department, which has oversight over Indian affairs, hasn't come to the aid of the tribes. A reporter at Wednesday's press conference asked Miss McCarthy whether she was being as hard on her own agency as she would have been on a private mine that had this kind of spill. We will hold ourselves to higher standards than we will anyone else, Ms. McCarthy repri- replied, although she didn't say what accountability would entail. The claim forms EPA officials were distributing on Navajo Reservation ask locals to estimate a dollar amount they can attribute to property damage, personal injury, or wrongful death. The form warns that failing to total up the claim may forfeiture your rights. Mr. Begay said many of the Navajo involved are elderly and speak Navajo as their primary language. As a result, they may have a difficult time understanding the forms and may feel pressured by the EPA to sign quickly. He said the situation is all the more enraging because the EPA has acknowledged that the cleanup will take decades, yet is pushing Navajo to calculate their costs now and sign away their rights for the future. Our leadership from the White House is almost non-existent, and now they're asking us to waive all of this stuff, and the yellow water is just flowing into the river. Nothing has been contained, he said. It's just huge. I don't want to use the word cover-up. But it's just our government not doing its job, causing all of this to happen to our people, our land, and our economy. He said EPA workers have acknowledged that other mines could be facing similar problems and the priority should be on fixing those and cleaning up the existing spill, which is flowing rather than trying to deflect liability. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah, deflecting liability is kind of what governments do. Yeah. It's it's okay if they do it. It's not okay if we do it. Yeah. (laughs) It's just kind of what they do. It's kind of what they've always done. It's kind of what they're always going to do. Um, You know, and it's okay if you kill or endanger or give, you know, millions of people some horrible disease due to your ineptitude. That's perfectly fine. But God help you if somebody else does it. (laughs) Well, unless it's a certain... Well, I mean, Rio Tinto gets away with a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually true. Um... It's just funny, and I didn't stick this in the show notes, but I think I saw yesterday, because I was, most of the day yesterday, I was answering um, emails, and um, I thought I saw that the EPA was ordered to stop investigating itself on the mine disaster, that they were going to bring in a third party. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm sure that'll work out well for them. (laughs) Well, yeah. Because, yeah, the, normally when they bring in third parties, it's usually people who have no idea about the subject that's being investigated. Um, yeah. Well, um, 
it's not shocking to me that they've done this. Um, it, as a regulatory agency, it's really funny. Most of the regulatory agencies in this country are unconstitutional. I mean, in fact, if, if you look at the way the Constitution was actually written or structured, um, the only person allowed to make a regulation or a law is supposed to be Congress. And most of that ability has really been taken away from them and given to regulatory agencies. So um, when you look at the sort of thing that Congress publishes in the federal record, it congratulates federal agencies for creating a regulation. It does none of that itself. Um, so when a regulation gets made or, or when a federal regulatory agency does something, there really is no one you can hold accountable. There's just bureaucracy, right? And, and how do you hold any of that accountable? You really can't. It's sort of the same thing you have with the EU. <laughs> with the TPD, who do you really hold accountable, right? Yeah. Brussels? You go to Brussels and just yell? Um, yeah, yeah, but then Brussels go, we're, we're just bureaucrats, it's nothing to do with us, it's the politicians vote, do, do all the voting. <laughs> is Darth Vader on the show tonight? I That's probably me, hmm? yeah, that's probably me. And oh, I was going to say, device. I sincerely hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, that that would be a fun hour, at the very least, I think. Yeah, I mean, these, these big atomizers are nice, but they're a bit noisy. <laughs> yeah well yeah that's it's a vaping show or uh, it's allegedly a vaping show it's a show on a vaping network you're gonna hear vaping noises i'm sorry <laughs> so yeah um oh hey cia accidentally sends apology letter it wrote but never sent to the senate for illegally spying on it so uh, Jason Leopold, terrorizer of FOIA staffers throughout the U.S. government, has again obtained documents many would have expected to remain out of reach for years to come. Certainly, the CIA thought one of the documents would remain its little secret for the rest of whenever. On July 28, 2014, the CIA director wrote a letter to Senators Diane, that fucking bitch Feinstein, and Saxby's Chambliss the chairwoman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and the panel's ranking Republican, respectively. In it, he admitted the CIA's penetration of a computer network used by committee staffers reviewing the agency's torture program, a breach for which Feinstein and Chambliss had long demanded accountability, was improper and violated agreements with the Intelligence Committee that they had made with the CIA. The letter was never sent. Instead of an apology, the Senate received accusations of impropriety after the CIA threw out its Inspector General's report on the breach and performed an in-house investigation, clearing the CIA of wrongdoing. The letter was never signed by Brennan or sent. It was filed away somewhere in the CIA's archives, hopefully never to be seen again. But it was mistakenly handed over to Jason Leopold, much to the CIA's chagrin. Additional chagrinment ensued. After Vice News received the documents, the CIA contacted them and said Brennan's draft letter had been released by mistake, and the agency asked that they retain from posting it. So, of course, they denied that request. So the CIA has yet to officially admit any wrongdoing, as in a document such as the one it didn't want released entered into the public record. 
and yet there's an admission of guilt in the public's hands, makes it a bit harder to defend actions Senator that bitch Feinstein claimed violated pretty much everything that could be violated in a single act. Feinstein wrote to Brennan on January 23rd, 2014, and told him she consulted with the Senate's legal counsel, who informed her that the CIA's search of the Senate's computer network may have been inconsistent with the separation of powers principles embodied in the Constitution and had to essentially to in the Constitution and essential to effective congressional oversight of intelligence activities. I don't know why they have to use such big words. It's ridiculous. Second, her letter continued, the search may have violated Fourth Amendment, the speech and debate clause of the Constitution, various statutes, including federal criminal statutes, such as the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and Executive Order 122, I'm sorry, 12333, which says it's unlawful for the CIA to conduct domestic spying. In short, it appears that while some in the CIA knew what it did was clearly wrong and potentially illegal, top management so insisted on denying it that it wouldn't even send an apology letter. And that would have stayed completely sacred if someone hadn't slipped up and handed over the unsigned letter accidentally in an FOI request dump. Yeah, well, I I like the bit that clearly wrong and potentially illegal. Well, it's illegal. (laughs) The CIA have no mandate to spy in the USA. Well, they've never had a mandate, but um, that's I think what the, the FBI is pro- supposed to be for, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got all these agencies, and none of them talks to each other, and they're all duplicating each other's work. So you have the FBI and the CIA, and then you have the NSA, and they're all essentially doing the same things. You've also got regular police departments doing the same thing. Yeah. And they're all doing the same kind of illegal take it all search and seizure digital fourth amendment violations on everybody but i like how it doesn't count when it's me or anybody else but it does count when it bothers congress and i like how diane feinstein and her husband have made shit tons of money through owning corporations that do a whole lot of surveillance technology and a lot of weapons trades none of that really seems to matter unless you know she's being you know potentially violated the rest of us have no rights yeah and it shouldn't be a problem it's kind of always been really interesting to me that sort of double standard that um do as i say not as i do thing that the government has always had going and it it it's funny how it bothers them now that's what kills me. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not just them. It's it's most politicians at every level, you know, right down to your 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 town. Yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> yeah, mayors and mm-hmm. public officials and it, uh, upwards. Yeah, they 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 make rules that they want us to follow, but <laughs> they they don't want to because yeah. it's inconvenient. Well, yeah, I I don't, all I can say is I just don't understand that, how that works, but I I think it's got something to do with the fact that government seems so impenetrable now, it seems almost impossible to make any kind of a dent in it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. you know exactly what I mean. You've you've got a government that's so decentralized and compartmentalized that 
I mean, to really make any sort of dent, you have to almost grab a hold of social media and beat it into submission so that they can see that, you know, the wind is not blowing their way. Because apparently these people that we elect up on high are completely protected from what we think or how we actually feel about stuff. They almost seem very, very clueless, like they're very sheltered. They can't possibly be that sheltered. They've got to know, you know, when, you know, rats have a higher approval rating than Congress, they have to know there's a problem with what they're doing and no one's really happy with it. Yeah. Not that that seems to offend them any. It offends the hell out of me, but it doesn't seem to bother them any. <laughs> so. Well, as, as long as they're uh, making their money and they're behind the doors deals and they can block people spying on them doing so, uh, yeah. they're, they're quite happy. Yeah. Of course they are. Of course they are being. No one what, else is that's happy. That's what the bulk of politics is about, is politicians making money for themselves. Oh, and being happy. Yeah. And screw the little guy. It's kind of always how it's been. Um, what I was going to say is, like, where I really see a problem is that sur- the cost of surveillance is too low. And that's <laughs> why it's so pervasive. Yeah. And I know that might sound fucked up, but follow me here. If the technology is so cheap that every governmental agency from the pol- your local police to the FBI to the CIA to everybody in government has a, has the ability and the money to get their hands on it they're all going to use it of course yeah. they're going to use it the only way to really rein this in and stop it is to make surveillance one of those things that's so cost prohibitive no one can afford to do it you know and of course there's always that wonderful argument that you know, sure you want your privacy but terrorists want to kill your children how do you argue with that? Yes, um, you know. Yeah, uh, the the answer to that is, uh, even if you surveil every square inch of the USA, terrorists are still going to kill people's children. Well, I mean, it's really funny, too, because I think every country has a really different definition of what a terrorist is. We think it's something here that people in other countries think is something else. So everybody has a really definition, a different definition for the people they surveil. But well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's huge differences between the USA and the UK on terrorism, mm-hmm. simply oh, yeah. because, well, we lived through the whole IRA thing for decades. Mm-hmm. So now, when you get you know the terrorist stuff, people are like, yeah, whatever, because <laughs> they know it's going to be yeah, yeah. There's going to be an incident every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, shit happens. <laughs> yeah, it. Um, oh, surveillance oh, you, is just really. Did you see what? the amazingly this uh, sidetrack thing? Okay. Did you see the funny thing that apparently in some of the latest data they've got that oh my god there might be a terrorist cell planning an attack in Glasgow. Oh god! Really? Yeah, because the last one went so well. <laughs> I sh- you know, when I think of, of all the places that you're going to find terrorists hanging out and, and plotting stuff, I don't think Glasgow, but, 
Yeah, well, no, it they didn't could really attack go something well in Glasgow, and it, there is the potential they could attack something in Glasgow, and it wouldn't be noticed. You know, the locals would just think, "Ah, oh, it's them kids up to something again." <laughs> yeah, one of the most fucked up cities in the world, and they're going to plan a terrorist activity there. I don't think so. Well, <laughs> maybe People they're not. People continued smoking without even much comment when they try to blow up the airport. The smoking section's next to where the doors were exploding, and there are people standing watching, having cigarettes. Well. That's Glasgow. (laughs) Why? Why would you... So, yeah, either terrorists are even dumber than we think they are, Mm -hmm. or, yeah, it's just somebody said something. Well, every terrorist we've caught here has been entrapped by the FBI. Or, you know, Chris Christie, the man who thinks that people have no self-control should be controlled by the government. Yeah. He looks like he ate Jabba the Hutt. So <laughs> I don't know where he gets off making those statements, but, you know. And I've, I've said it before, most most of the terrorists that have been caught mm-hmm. have been caught by old-fashioned techniques, not by all this data-grabbing crap. Well... The data grab, I, I still don't... Actually, I, I I thought a really decent way to explain it last week was when they were talking about the government's hunt for money. That makes far more sense to me than all the shit they say they're... They say they're doing with our data. You know, oh, yeah. it, it's all economics. It has nothing to do with terrorism. And if you actually believe it has to do with terrorism... You're really fucking naive. You know, in, in, in the more cynical bits of my mind, it goes, yeah, of course the NSA are collecting all this data. They're, they're selling it to Google. <laughs> it's alphabet to you. Yeah. I still don't understand that. Why they went out and split everything up unless they're actually thinking that the government's going to come in and split them up. Which that kind of makes sense. I mean, the oh, government yeah. does I mean, that. G- Google is, yeah, it's 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 heading rapidly to being one of these mega corporations you see in science fiction stories. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it kind of. It is. already nearly is. I mean, it's huge. It is. It's I mean, really yeah, big. it's not the most profitable company in the world, but it's probably the largest. See, I don't know that... I think profit is also not what we think it is anymore. No. Um, When you look at a company like Amazon that is always losing money, yet they're still one of the... Growing (laughs) massively. You know, they're they're constantly losing shit tons of money. They're hemorrhaging it. Mm -hmm. And yet they're still expanding, they're still building, they're still considered to be one of those companies that's just unstoppable. And that's yeah. because of the amazing amount of data they're collecting on people. Yes. You know, that data is basically currency now. And they can do anything with that. They're not making money off you or me. They're making money off when we go to their website. They're selling our information to advertisers for targeted advertising. Yeah. Or to governments. I mean, really, who knows what the hell they're doing with it. So, Yeah. And and that's kind of the worrisome thing when you get 
to a point where you can't distinguish government entities from big business at all. And that's kind of the place I think we're heading, and, and that's one of the definitions of fascism, is it not? Well, yes and no. I mean, it can be. It depends uh, how it plays out. Yeah. But yeah, everybody thought the military and industrial complex was bad, but now we have the data government agency complex uh, having a right <laughs> old time. Well, it's, it's the DIC complex. It only mm-hmm. needs a K in it, and it would be a perfect anagram for the way the government treats people. Anyway, um, so, you know, we have an immigration issue. Uh, you, might, you might have heard we have an immigration <laughs> issue in my country. <laughs> yeah, I always laugh, yeah. Cause, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, you've got an immigration issue and some of the largest areas of no population in the oh, world. Oh, I know. Well, yeah. yeah, but if you want to see something really interesting, you should take and hold up a map of the United States and then for shits and giggles, and I don't normally say this, you should go get an Agenda 21 map and lay that that area of the United States over the area of the United States and you see some really interesting correlations. Yeah. my opinion. But anyway, um, the State Department employee sentenced for selling visas at up to $70,000. A State Department employee who sold U.S. visas on the black market in Vietnam for up to $70,000 a pop was sentenced Friday to 64 months in prison after a scam authorities said allowed hundreds of travelers who had previously been denied entry to sneak into the U.S., the scheme, which involved a handful of people, netted more than $9 million during the two years that it ran, submitted about 500 fraudulent visa applications, and almost all of them were granted, even though many of those same people had been denied visas before. Michael T. Seastack, who ran the non-immigrant visa section of the consulate in Ho Chi Minh City, took home about $3 million of that which he laundered through buying properties in Thailand, federal authorities said. Because of the defendant's selfish greed, nearly 500 foreign nationals were able to enter the United States without proper screening. The sentence reflects the seriousness of his corrupt conduct, said Vincent H. Cohen Jr., acting U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. C-Stack pled guilty in 2013. Several others in the case have already been sentenced, including one American citizen living in Vietnam who made more than $5 million from the scam. He was sentenced to serve eight years in prison. Authorities said C-Stack colluded with both American and Vietnamese citizens in Ho Chi Minh City to recruit and approve visas using his position as chief of the division that reviewed the applications. Payments ranged from $15,000 to $70,000, and many of the people had previously been denied visas but were approved by CSAC's scheme, prosecutors said. So I guess that's... Yeah. Yeah, well, he he got caught. Uh, If if a politician had done it, he'd have got a slap on the wrist and told not to do it again. Of course. And politicians (laughs) do do it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, we have to give this person a visa because... I know them. <laughs> Politicians do a lot of stuff normal people can't get away with. Yeah. 
They're, they're just yeah. annoyed because he was making money out of it. <laughs> a lot. Well, yeah, he was making really good money out of it. Yeah. Which is, I don't know. It's not like it's not expected. It is expected. It's just, I guess, unusual. Well, I mean, they're 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 putting that guy in jail. In the meantime, you have how, how many Mexicans walking across the border uninhibited every every day? <laughs> well, it's a joke. I don't know. I don't know if you remember, but when Karen Carey and I did the show, we did a story where we were almost in tears. We were laughing so hard. They had taken all the weapons away yeah, from Border Patrol. And they had basically armed them with tasers and squirt guns and flashlights. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, no, even if you've got anybody there, you know, they tell them to run. Yeah. If people coming across the border throw rocks at them, <laughs> <laughs> that's helpful. That makes us look really good. But the immigration arguments are always hilarious. I mean, both quite well noted in the UK that people keep going on about immigrants, mm -hmm. and then pe people who study the uh, numbers go, "Yeah, yeah, net migration's huge," and. Most of them get jobs that don't pay well because people in the country involved don't want to do the shitty jobs. Right. And, well, I mean, you know, you still have people going, oh, there's too many immigrants. It's like, really? If we didn't have all these illegal immigrants, I think you find a lot a lot of the economy would be fucked, politely, well, to put it politely. You <laughs> know, honestly, I don't... I don't really have a problem with immigration. I have a problem with people not being screened. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's the only real problem I have. And it's not because I think they're coming here to, you know, destroy us all. You know, I think it's because no, they, they can bring diseases in like that could really else. hurt the existing population. And that's really my only problem with it. Well, I mean, <laughs> the UK, they keep going on about, oh, there's too many immigrants. Blah, blah, blah. And when this, the the current crisis, uh, I'm sure you're aware of, uh, mm -hmm. down in the Channel Ports, all the people fleeing from IS. Right. Um, and Britain goes, oh, no, 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 we're too full up, we can't take any more. And we've already taken our quote of, you know, these, these people. And you look at the numbers other European countries have taken in. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> so much bigger than the amount we've taken in. Well, but you still you have know, these idiots going, oh, there are too many of them here already. You're like, <laughs> really? You know, Germany's managed to soak up, you know, ten times as many. <laughs> Brian, well, you know, it, it really is a complex issue, and, and I don't really mean to take away from it when I talk about people doing that, because I, I really do think it's a complex issue. A lot of people come to this country, and then you really should see the conditions we warehouse people in who are refugees. Yeah. You, you really should take a look at those because they're really pretty fucking horrific. Yes. We basically take men, women, and children. We separate the men from the women. We keep the women with the children and we throw them in jail. Basically, we throw them in abandoned jails. It's, it's really pretty terrible conditions. And I think most people don't know that. They think people just come here and they have a wonderful time. Um, I've got to tell you, I don't think I'd want to emigrate to another country and be tossed in prison. That doesn't sound well, like fun to me. That's the thing about a lot of these people, though. 
that's happening to them and quite often it's still better than the life they had where they came from and and then people go, oh, why do they come here? It's like, because they're trying to do better for themselves. Where they come from's a shithole, and they want out. I mean, oh. and it's especially funny when it when you talk about the USA and immigration, mm-hmm. since the whole damn country is built on immigration. <laughs> I'm sure the founding fathers way back. Had, mm-hmm. had these exact same arguments. Oh my God, there are too many Irish people. Well, <laughs> let us let us not forget. Yeah. I, I can make this argument because I'm both Irish and Native American, so I can make this argument. Yeah. The Irish were generally the last off the boat, and basically discrimination in this country was, uh, we're going to exterminate the Indians, but whoever comes off the boat is right underneath them. In how we feel about people in this country. Yeah. So, we've always done that. That's always how it's been here. It's just mostly, just, yeah, these days it's mostly Hispanics and Arabs that uh, people seem to be down on. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. You know, the EPA seems to be trying to kill as many Native Americans as they can wholesale. It's an ongoing thing. It always has yeah. been. <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say about this like i said it really is a complex issue and a lot of the scientists and stuff that emigrate to our country legally are doing stuff that our people aren't actually able to do because we've dumbed down the education system so much it really is a complex issue and a lot of it's really ugly and it's probably something we should just do a whole two hours on some night i just don't think i've got the patience to do it tonight yeah so, yeah, um, it's 6.43, yeah, this one's small. When the NSA tells journalists things, those things are not necessarily true. And it's pretty sad that somebody had to write this down. If you find yourself reading a story about the U.S. war on spying, that contains a variation on the phrase, according to U.S. officials, in the top paragraph, you are likely biting into a whopper of state propaganda and lies. Today's New York Times reporting on the Snowden documents provides just the latest example. Back in February 2014, the Washington Post and Wall Street Journal published three times stories under the bylines of two of those newspapers' most respected national security and surveillance journalists. The Post story started like this. The National Security Agency is collecting less than 30% of all Americans' call records because of an inability to keep pace with the explosion in cell phone use, according to current and former U.S. officials. Here's the same first paragraph of the Wall Street Journal story reporting the same official claims. The National Security Agency's collection of phone data at the center of controversy over U.S. surveillance operations gathers information from about 20% or less of all U.S. calls, much less than previously thought, according to people familiar with the NSA program. AP's Philip Bump ran a story based on the Post version. Troublingly, his first paragraph dispensed entirely with the origin of the information. In Bump's retelling, the information appears to have come from God or or is at least as good as the word. The NSA's 
vaunted cell phone metadata collection program, often defended on the grounds that its comprehensive sweep of information allows the government to uncover unseen connections, only collected about 30% of all such information as of last summer. The problem with these stories, actual NSA documents read not NSA employee claims to journalists, show their faults. The New York Times reports one document disclosed by former NSA contractor and whistleblower Edward Snowden. In 2011, AT&T began handling over 1.1 billion domestic cell phone calling records a day to the NSA after a push to get this flow operation prior to the 10th anniversary of 9-11, according to an internal agency newsletter. This revelation is striking because after Mr. Snowden disclosed the program of collecting the records of Americans' phone calls, intelligence officials told reporters that, for technical reasons, it consisted mostly of landline phone records. I must quibble a bit with the New York Times' excellent reporting here, only to suggest that what's striking about the discrepancy between what journalists reported and the truth isn't the fact that the NSA would lie to journalists. What's striking is that the journalists continue to print official, often anonymous claims about government surveillance programs without a shred of evidence that those claims are true. In February 2014, the NSA must have decided, perhaps in consultation with other parts of the U.S. security state establishment, to lie to a few key journalists in order to propagate the myth that the all-powerful intelligence agency couldn't figure out how to obtain cell phone records. At the time, not everyone believed it, but two powerful U.S. newspapers were credulous and printed NSA claims as if they were fact, in the apparent absence of any documentation or other confirmation. Everyone, including media consumers, needs to remember a very simple thing about intelligence agencies. They are professionals in deceit and manipulation. A good spy must be able to lie and connive in order to achieve their goals. You wouldn't expect a car mechanic to be a good oral surgeon. You also shouldn't expect spies to tell the truth. Remember that the next time you read a newspaper article based off undocumented, unproven official claims. Well, quite, yeah. I mean, (laughs) when you talk to any of the (laughs) secrecy agencies, shall we say. (laughs) um, Secrecy agencies, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, you, you can't believe a damn thing they say. Even if they show you documented evidence. Because, mm. yeah, they've probably made that up too. Because <laughs> that's, that's what true. they're in the business of doing. Well, Obfuscation. That's, yeah. That's kind of really, that's very true. And I, I think, I'm going to say something that's going to sound really stupid. And, and it's it's something I keep turning over and over in my mind. I think Edward Snowden believes the stuff that he turns over turned over to be genuine. Yeah. I think he believed the way he was doing it was the right way to do it. Yeah. I think the way that it's coming out in dribs and drabs is just reinforcing to people that this is how it is now and there's nothing we can do to stop it. Yeah. I don't think that's a good thing. I don't think that's a good state of mind to have when yeah. it comes to well, this. Well, I mean, you already know that I think quite a lot of the stuff that he got away with isn't real. Because, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, decent spy agencies don't leave the really good stuff lying around. Uh, well, I've, I've said I've said to you before, um, when the British government releases secret documents, which, you know, mm-hmm. there's a limitation on how long they can keep stuff secret. 
Right. Um, st- the stuff on UFOs was hilarious because I don't know. I don't. Whoever did it obviously had a sense of humor, but right. all, all the folders with all the project names mm-hmm. <laughs> were released, and then people opened up these folders, and there's nothing in them. <laughs> you know. It's like, oh dear, we seem to, we seem to have lost all this secret information. Yeah, you know right. what, though, I mean, if the government, if the government wanted to shut people the hell up, and it wanted to give them something else to focus on, something else to think about, you know, it, it would release a whole bunch of made-up crap about what, like Bigfoot and UFOs, and just have that leaked because that would shut a lot of fucking people well, up. Well, I know. I can't, I can't prove it, obviously, but so mm-hmm. much of the UFO shit going on around Grim Lake. Right. But, I mean... That's military. Yeah. Let's I be mean, honest. In the 70s and 80s, they're covering up the Aurora Project. Right, of um, course. Which uh, they, they still don't admit to, <laughs> even <laughs> though people have seen it flying around. Um, <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah, it's it's bad when the local TV station reporters are going, "Look at it!" You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. And on the, the whole, yeah, a lot of the actual flying saucer things. I mean, that that, that was military experiments. Of course, don't care it was. what the military say. We have mm-hmm. film proof of that one. <laughs> <laughs> we have seen film of them test flying UFO shaped objects. Oh, of so, course. You know. I mean, and back from the forties and fifties too. In, in After black World and White. War II. I mean, I mean, you know, the, the Germans were working on uh, some sort of um, nuclear anti-gravity system mm-hmm. in, in Eastern Europe. The mm. the video about the construction site they found is quite quite funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're looking at it and going, "Do you know th- those blueprints look exactly like what people keep saying UFOs look like?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, and it's it's funny, too, because starting in about the 70s, early 80s, you saw the descriptions starting to change. Yeah. And when the descriptions started to change, yeah, um, I, I grew up, my grandparents listened to a lot of stuff on talk radio that was not exactly normal, but in the, so I heard it, too. Um in the 70s to 80s, the descriptions of UFOs stopped changing. It started really changing from mm-hmm. being the, the typical ringed saucer type thing to being something that looks a hell of a lot like the stealth bomber yes. looks now. Big so, flying thing, yes. <laughs> I just find that really funny. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just... I'm going to say one more thing about intelligence agencies. I, I think... Based on looking at the news for as long as I have... Intelligence agencies have about a five-year window of secrecy on the things they do. You know what I mean? Before leaks start to develop very... You know what I'm saying? So, everything we're hearing about now is something that's gone on previously. Yes. At least five years in the past. That shouldn't really fucking worry you. What should worry you is what they can do now. That stuff we're not hearing about now should scare you even more than the stuff we already know. Well, uh, I know I know it's a bad a bad way to look at things, but yeah, I don't worry about it hugely because they'll do what they do. There's not a great deal 
we as oh. individuals can do about it. And the only way you could deal with it is overthrowing the government, which mm. I know lots of people talk about, but yeah, it's not as easy as people think. Well, yeah, but you also, you don't get to pick what's going to start that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You can go around and talk about the government being, you know, unfair. You can talk about income inequality. You can talk about race. You don't know what's going to be that final spark that sets everything off. No. You know, um, and that's an unpredictable thing. You can plant the seeds, but you can't make it happen. And and I'm not going to argue that I don't think you really want it to. Because as bad as you think things are now... Yeah. At least you're not living in burned-out rubble. Yes. You yeah, know. Just, just ask people in Iraq about that one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so. and even, even, to a lesser extent, people in Egypt. Yeah. It so. went, yeah, their uprising went really well for them. Yeah, and large parts of the population ran worse off than they were. Well, yeah, I mean... Destabilization of a government is something that uh, my CIA does really well. Well, Um, not really well, but you know they've got their hands in every pie. Yeah, put it that way. Um, And they know what they're doing. They sow seeds of discontent. Um, They put up artificial divides between people. Um, In fact, if 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 I were to be fairly honest with you, I would say, um, to me, the way things look to me, looking at my country right now, I would say that those seeds are being sown right now. Oh, they have been for we're, decades. We're, yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about by my own government. Oh, where, yeah, they have been for decades. Uh huh. But this is the kind of place where you look at the country and you go, I could see us taking this country the way it is now as divided as it is and splitting it into fours and making it four different little micro countries and things would probably be a lot healthier forcing people to be a union together like forcing the United States together with Canada and Mexico would be disastrous you see the results where you are Mm -hmm. you know um and yet, we're told that's actually kind of the goal of the United Nations. One government, one world, everybody united together under the same goal. And yet, I've never seen a world more divided than it is now, never mind a country. So I, I think I think a lot of people, uh, a, a lot of the power players, uh, I think quite a lot of them play quite a lot of Fallout games. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I didn't really like Fallout. Fallout New Vegas was not really all that fun. It's not supposed to be fun. I know, but I'm just saying. I think these people, these people with their grand ideas and their grand chessboard, yeah. they don't live in the same world with the rest of us. Yeah. That's probably the easiest thing I have to say, and it's about like three minutes till we get Alex, so... um. I should probably stop engaging in the conspiracy theory so I just sound so less crazy when we have Kassa on to talk. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's it's pretty screwed up, Yeah, the way things are. And 
it's not going to be an easy fix, but I think you start with fixing the money. I think you start with fixing the money. You can have a lot more conversations that are going to make a lot more sense than they do right now. And yeah, yeah, America is kind of politics heavy. Yeah, I don't believe you need to get rid of all of government. That's not going to work. Um, But yeah, you have so many layers of government. It's just stupid. Hello? Pat, it's the kettle calling. Look at the UK. Look at the EU. Look at Brussels. You basically have a layer of government. They they, they get together and they fight on TV. Well, yeah. (laughs) They do nothing. I mean, it's essentially what my Congress is doing. It's a form of governance that has nothing to do with government and has everything to do with being a show. Well, I I, I would say some of the best entertainment you can have is watching the Italian Parliament. It's hilarious. It's like, you know, know, UFC fighters. They learn some things from watching some of the Italian. Five uh, minutes of hate. Um, Yeah. No, it's it's pretty bad. Although, I kind of like... Have you ever seen They Work For You? Yeah. I know you have. My favorite part of They Work For You is when they show everybody sleeping. (laughs) Yeah. They're debating legislation and everybody's asleep. You've, you've essentially got people in your government there that are like mine. They've been there 800 years. It's yes. like they've inherited their post from eons ago, and they're sitting there sleeping. And they should really be talking about how these policies really affect people. Well, Not I only mean, don't yeah, they have I mean, clue, they don't care. <laughs> the, the noticeable one this year was the, the House of Lords uh, voting on its own budget. And it's like, oh no, we can't, we can't cut back on the the budget for champagne. No, <laughs> we need to be drunk to do this. Well, some some bureaucrat suggested they sell off some of the stock of champagne, and it was like, oh my god, no, we can't that's do that. Separates, that's what separates us from them. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, the, there's there's a meme last year. Mm-hmm. There is. There's two pictures. One, it's like, this is the discussion on vote on some public health policy. And there's about eight politicians. <laughs> the speaker and, you know, the other bureaucrats. And then the next picture was, and this was the next day, the vote on MPs' pay. And standing <laughs> Everyone room was there, right? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> they don't want to yeah, lose yeah, anything. I mean, you know. You know, it's it's very very serious this politics thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it is. Do you want to try and get Alex? Oh yes. Hang on. Where's my stick window gone? Okay. Uh, still getting used to Windows Ten. Uh, <laughs> no way to be stealthy with Windows Ten. Thinking Linux is starting to look good to me. <laughs> Just saying. Hi, Alex. How are you this evening? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 8-17-2015. So, 
Has anything exciting been happening lately, Alex? Well, there was a big get-together in California this weekend. Oh, i heard. <laughs> I wasn't there. Um, uh, I, I, I burned through all of my vacation days this year, so yeah, um, I, I sat this one out. Um, mm-hmm. Sounds like I made a wise choice. That's enough of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so California uh, is actually um, in the news. Um yeah. The uh, I just I just saw this email actually. Um, okay. Apparently, last Thursday, right about the time I was cranking out our call to action for California, um, right. it was uh, being announced that Wednesday, August nineteenth, that's right. this Wednesday, mm-hmm. um, the uh, the hearing will be held for. Uh, these bills, um, and the public is is uh, invited to attend, I believe, and testify. Nice. Um, I have to I have to bring up my email here. Okay. Um, so, um, yep, set for a hearing Wednesday, August nineteenth at one thirty p.m. Um, and. Uh, so, yeah, uh, if you're in Sacramento on Wednesday around 1.30, I assume there's going to be some uh, announcements as to, you know, where to gather and get organized and um, show up and testify. Uh, I'm just getting home from work and, and getting plugged into this now, so mm-hmm. uh, I'll probably be putting out an update later. Okay. But suffice it to say that's happening this week. And, of course... Um, only a couple hundred people have availed ourselves of availed themselves of our service, um, <laughs> but uh, we do have an active call to action for California. Uh, it takes less than three minutes to send an email to your lawmakers. Uh, there's a, 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 a couple of handfuls of lawmakers that are participating in this public health special session, um, so. It, it doesn't really matter where you live. Just mm-hmm. go ahead and send an email to these to your lawmakers. Um, you know, chances are they could be friends with somebody who's going to be involved in this special session, uh, and, and everybody talks. So everybody in California should be contacting their lawmakers right now. Uh, and um, <clears throat> chances are that you know a vast majority of people are not going to be able to show up and testify. So uh, right. please take take this opportunity to send an email. And I also kind of quietly resurrected the Fight for Your Right to Vape Daily Action Plan and oh, produced, produced a series of uh, pre-filled tweets, which I need to update again okay. uh, today for everybody that, uh, that uh, we got um, Twitter handles for. Okay. Um, and for those that don't know, uh, the folks over at Not Blowing Smoke have produced a list of Twitter handles. So if nice. Twitter's your thing, um, get on the Twitter horn and send some tweets. Um, if you live in California, it's even better. <sighs> <laughs> Poor California. It's uh, 
it's just never ending for them. Yeah, I, you know, and on top of it, they've got some horrible drought and nobody's got any water. Um, yeah, but so, they've got black plastic balls floating all over their reservoir, so that helps. Yeah, that was really interesting. I actually saw an art project, total sidebar here. Um, mm -hmm. There was an art project um, where people were actually covering rivers. Um, and part of the, the way that they were able to produce this was, uh, you know, I think they had to submit some sort of an environmental impact study. And they actually found that it was beneficial because it was creating shade. And so the water from the river was less likely to evaporate. So there was right. a water conservation angle there. Um, mm -hmm. And this is, you know, this is an artist that was, was doing this, um, mm -hmm. I think. I mean, I'm, you can fact check my story here, but um, I, I think that was pretty interesting. So yeah. it's certainly uh, a, a very, I'm sure it would be very expensive to produce something like that, but uh, a lot more aesthetically pleasing than a river filled with black balls. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, this is, this is Los Angeles too, which is the new, you know, all the, the tons of, you know, the art scene in Brooklyn is moving out there. So huh. whatever, um, California. <laughs> Um, so anyway, uh, good luck, California. Uh, that's enough of that. Um, moving on to okay. um, another state um, that's typically <laughs> a lot more engaged in this issue, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, oh, wow. We've had a tremendous response from Pennsylvania advocates. Um, mm -hmm. Their governor, Tom, or Tom Wolf, uh, Governor Wolf is still pushing a 40% tax on vapor products. Um, <sighs> Uh, this came out the same day last week. Okay. Um, so uh, now is the time for Pennsylvania residents to uh, reach out and send your lawmakers and the governor a, um, a message saying that you oppose his plan to tax vapor products because that's ridiculous. Right. Um, and exactly. So yeah, there's actually two active calls to action for Pennsylvania. One is a thank you letter to your um, representative in the Pennsylvania mm -hmm. House, and the other is an email to the governor telling him to knock it off. Um, <laughs> so uh, Pennsylvania, get busy, and uh, thanks to everybody in PA that's already taken action. Um, and then the other thing, I lost my email again. Um, <laughs> Last week, I sent out kind of a, a, a bit of a rambling update. Um, right. We, so this was the, uh, we have a new FDA call to action that's up. Um, this is, uh, the FDA has uh, Warning labels. Sub, sub, submitted advance notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, and there's some debate within our little group should that be ANPR or ANPRM? Because right. rulemaking is one word, so why do you need the M on the end? <laughs> um, sorry, kidding. Uh, I'll be here all week. Don't forget to tip your bartender. Um, so uh, yeah, this is this has to do with uh, warning labels and child-resistant packaging. Mm -hmm. um, I, I should know more about this, but just to grab one point out that uh, sticks out to me. And I right. believe this is actually part of our comment. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, you know, one of the things about warning labels is that, you know, on one hand, they are useful. They convey 
the message that there are ingredients in here that can be toxic and hazardous and can cause death or injury. Right. That is all important stuff that people should know. On the other hand, if you're overstating those risks, there's an activist kind of element to this and you are actively misinforming people in an effort to dissuade them from using these products. And so this is one of our big concerns here is that while it may be appropriate to have some sort of warning about mm -hmm. exposure to nicotine liquid, it should be appropriate and, you know, lists, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't write warning labels for a living, so I don't really know, uh, you know, how much can you honestly fit on a 30 milliliter bottle, um, right. telling people what they should do should they come in contact with this liquid. Um, you know, and we've had people, I, I believe there was, uh, I'm trying not to name names or whatever, but, you know, somebody had posted up a, a video actually pouring e-liquid on his arm and sitting there for a minute, you know, and this is not like, I, think, I don't know if he was using like 24 milligram or 18 milligram, whatever, um, you know, somebody who accidentally spills a couple of drops of six milligram e-liquid on their arm, you know, some water will take care of that pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. right. But imagine seeing a warning label on that particular product saying, you know, skull and crossbones and, you know. Use goggles and gloves when handling. Yeah, burn your clothes when you're done. Like right. all of this nonsense that that is, that's going too far and that is uh, a concern. So just one example of uh, some topics for, you know, your comment uh, to right. the FDA on this issue. Uh, mm -hmm. And obviously we've um, put together sort of a, an easy, you know, a simple comment. And, you know, for those who might want to invest some more time to produce a more detailed comment, all of those directions are in our call to action. And um, I believe the deadline is August 31st. So um, uh, if you're, if you're interested in participating in this, uh, start get out your writing sticks and start writing um, yep. and uh, obviously and then check out our call to action for um, uh, the process by which you can submit your comment um, mm -hmm. there's lot, lots of clickable links and lots of information and we've made this all uh, as easy as we can make it um. yeah. well you're, you're dealing with the federal government they they as much as they say they want to hear from you they don't exactly make it um, very easy. So you, you actually need these kind of calls to action with the links and the showing you have to put it in a word document. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a little challenging. Yeah. This isn't like the legislative advocacy that we have spent a lot of time on this year. Um, right. you know, very much like the, the, the first FDA call to action. Um, well, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, I don't know, we, we're probably <laughs> up to six on this issue or more. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there's, um, there is no point in click advocacy to the FDA stuff. Um, they're, they're, you know, it, it's, it's a different kind of policy making and, and they are, you know, the, the theory, anyway, is that they are looking for substantive comments and, and important points that they're going to look at and rehash and discuss and 
do whatever it is that they do with it and hopefully it, it informs their policy in a, a way that benefits us um, fingers crossed you know because that works out so well um, but uh, no comment <laughs> um, but uh, yeah it's just you know I don't know I don't want to no, I, I don't think I don't think people should should be discouraged either. But I, I do think there's there's a point. Um, who do you really think they've gotten to regulate tobacco products? Do you know what I mean? Uh, there's a certain subset of people, and you know maybe it's not entirely useless to try to talk to them. I mean. I don't know. We tried talking to the World Health Organization and I've got to say I was surprised when the actual architect for the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control came out strongly in favor of of tobacco harm reduction. That was a surprise to me. That Mm -hmm. wasn't something I had ever expected to happen. So, um, you know, the unexpected can happen, you know, so might as well take a shot. You've yeah. got nothing to lose. And, you know, at the very least, share your story, I guess, yeah. is um, probably, you know, there are tons of people out there who are motivated to take action. And a lot of this science stuff is, uh, this sciencey stuff is a little bit beyond me a lot of the time. So, right. um, you know, at the very least, you know, just tell the FDA that you care and you, you don't mm-hmm. want to lose access to these products and you want people to have accurate information. It's, uh, that's enough. Yeah. So, um, and then at the end of our, you know, call to action, just we'll, t- we'll tell you how to submit that comment too. So, yeah. um, anyway, check out our FDA call to action, our most recent FDA call to action. <laughs> There's and, so uh, many of them. I'm yeah. sure there'll be plenty more. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that went out in that update is a uh, survey that we have vetted um, I haven't taken the survey myself, but, um, it, it's, it's relatively simple. Um, the title of it is your perceptions and experiences of using electronic cigarettes. Right. Um, this is something that was produced by the center for drug misuse research. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, our scientific, uh, officer, Carl Phillips, um, and some others on our board of advisors, I think, uh, took a look at this and said, this is fine. And so we're, you know, we're comfortable putting this out to our membership to participate in. Um, right. And uh, it's, it's a very brief survey. So uh, the link will be in the description uh, notes for the podcast and you can click on that and go take a survey. Yeah. Um, and so those are the two uh, big kind of new bits. Um, and of course, the uh, support HR 2058. 2058. <laughs> And uh, tell your story. Um, You know, we are continuing to collect stories for people that have had success with uh, smoke-free products and electronic cigarettes. And, uh, yeah, it's an important collection that we can point lawmakers to, policymakers, um, people who might be on the fence about these products, no matter what position they're in. Mm and uh, we should have tens of thousands of these things. So, I agree. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. That's, 
thank you for coming on tonight, Alex. Um, thank you for everything you do. Um, if you've not already joined CASA, please join us. Um, you can go to CASA.org and do that. Um, you can also find a link on the CASA.org front page to share your story. Um, your testimonials are very important. They are how we tell lawmakers that these products do actually help people and change their lives. Um, if you've not joined in on the conversation, you can join us on Twitter at Casa Media, YouTube at Casa Media, Instagram at Casa Media, uh, Google Plus as Casa.org, um, and Facebook on the We Are Casa page and the official Casa.org Facebook page. Um, thank you for everything you do and thank you for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Have a nice night. Thank you, Alex. Thanks. I guess this is the point where I say I'm taking next Monday off. Well, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that could work, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just thought I would mention that. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit newsed out, surprisingly. Well, happens to everyone. Yeah, so that'll be the first time we haven't done a show this year because we did them at Christmas, we did them at New Year's, we did them at 4th of July when nobody else did. So, you know, this is my vacation this year. Don't begrudge me, I need it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was on holiday last week, basically. So Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I've done a show every week this year, yeah. except for this one coming up. So next Monday there will be no cheerful news. So people are just gonna have to troll around the place themselves. And, yeah. You know, maybe maybe Kevin or Russell do something. Who knows? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Well. Okay. So we talked about. Um, well, we talked about a lot about the NSA and the EPA. Um, so let's talk about how the government makes no fly lists because this is pretty interesting stuff. The Obama administration's no fly lists and broader watch listing system is based on predicting crimes rather than relying on records of demonstrated offenses. The government has been forced to admit in court in a little notice filing before an Oregon federal judge, the U S department and the FBI can conceded that stopping U.S. and other citizens from traveling on airplanes is a matter of predictive assessments about potential threats, the government asserted in May. By its very nature, identifying individuals who may be a threat to civil aviation or national security is a predictive judgment intended to prevent future acts of terrorism in an uncertain context, Justice Department official Benjamin Miser and Anthony J. Capone. Capolino told the court on May 28th. Judgments concerning potential threats to aviation and national security call upon unique prerogatives of the executive in assessing such threats. It is believed to be the government's most direct acknowledgement to date that people are not allowed to fly because of what the government believes they might do and not what they've already done. 
the Justice Department said it must meet a standard of, quote, reasonable suspicion that is that a blacklisted individual poses a threat a step below cause. The declaration comes in a longstanding case bought by the American Civil Liberties Union, arguing that the government does not provide significant steps for someone caught in the predictive assessments to get off the blacklists. On Friday, the ACLU asked Judge Anita Brown to conduct her own review of the error rate in the government's prediction, predictions modeling, a process the ACLU likens to the pre-crime of Philip K. Dick science fiction. I believe this is the first case in which a court is being asked to review the basis for the government's predictive model for blacklisting people who have never been charged, let alone convicted of a violent crime, said ACLU attorney Haya Shemincy. In March, as a result of the lawsuit, the Department of Homeland Security began informing people of their inclusion on a flight blacklist and permitting them to file a redress inquiry. The resulting non-adversarial process has the government perform a careful consideration of the reasons for blacklisting within the Transportation Security Agency director as a final arbiter. The ACLU considers the new process insufficient. But the Obama administration is seeking to block the release of further information about how the predictions are made. For the same reason, it opposes providing greater information for challenging watch list inclusion, damage to national security. If the government were required to provide full notice of its reasons for placing an individual on the no-fly list and turn over all evidence, both incriminating and exculpatory, Supporting the no-fly determination, the no-fly redress process would place highly sensitive national security information directly in the hands of terrorist organizations and other adversaries. The assistant director of the FBI's counterterrorism division, Michael Steinbach, wrote in a declaration to Brown. Terrorist organizations would have every incentive to manipulate the Department of Homeland Security's procedures for challenging no-fly list inclusions, Steinbach argued, in order to discover whether they or their members are subject to investigation or intelligence operations, what sources and methods the government employs to obtain information, or what type of intelligence information is sufficient to trigger an investigation in the first place. Joined by Clayton Grigg of the FBI's Terror Screening Center, Steinbeck asserted there were guesses or hunches or the reporting of suspicious activity alone are not sufficient to establish reasonable suspicion. On Friday, the ACLU told Brown that the administrative predictive assessments pose an extremely high risk of error. Mark Sageman, a former CIA counterterrorism analyst and current academic researcher at of terrorism, submitted a brief for the ACLU arguing that the government's predictive model of underpinning blacklist inclusion was not responsibly rigorous. There is no indication that the government has assisted the scientific validity and reliability of its predictive judgments or the information that leads to those judgments, nor has it used a scientifically valid model for predicting and accounting for the rate of error that might arise from these predictive judgments. Due to these failures alone, the government's predictive judgments cannot be considered reliable, Sageman told the court on Friday. Without a scientifically validated process, Sageman asserted, the government's judgments about who does and does not pose a terrorist threat to aviation amount to little more than guesses or hunches that Mr. Gregg says are not sufficient to meet the criteria. Previous court filings in this case and a related one suggest that the placement on the no-fly and other watch lists not, uh, results not merely from threat assessments.
In 2014, five people, all of whom were Muslim, claimed that they were suddenly forbidden from flying after declining FBI pressure to become informants or in order to place pressure upon them to do so. Informants, along with social media postings, have become a driving factor in the FBI's uptick in arrests of people with suspected ties to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. In July 2014, The Intercept published an internal watchlisting guidance indicating that nominations to government watchlists were growing with few rejections. Social media posts were among the most acceptable criteria, and acquittals in court did not necessarily lead to removals from the list. The government is depriving innocent people like our clients of their constitutionally protected liberties without providing a fair process for them to challenge the blacklisting and clear their names, the ACLU said. Not really a shock, but... No, it's... Yeah, I mean... They basically make up what they feel they should be sticking on these lists as they go along. Well, you know, the problem with this stuff isn't what they're doing to people that aren't you or I. The problem is, eventually, the people they're doing this to are going to be you and I. Eventually, we're going to get to a point where you're not allowed to be critical of the government or what it does, or you're going to be right next to those people it doesn't allow to fly, or that it places in indefinite detention. That's the problem with all this stuff. Yeah. It really is a slippery slope. And I love how the argument is that's that's a logical fallacy. There's no truth to it. Of course there's truth to it. We've seen it all throughout history. This is yeah. how it starts. You start with people that nobody likes. And then the policies just sort of expand over time. It might be really slowly, but they always expand over time. And the government really doesn't get smaller unless it's absolutely forced to become smaller. Yeah. And the areas it gets involved with expand over time as it becomes a larger and larger employer of people and and things of that nature. It's, It's very hard to change it, but it's not so hard to be aware that it's happening. Yeah. So, yeah. You guys must have much the same there. Well, hmm. yes, we do. Uh, although the government would completely deny, of course, that they do such a thing. <laughs> of course they would. Oh, yeah. I mean, why would you admit to that? No. You would, you would have to be insane to admit you do that, right? Yeah, well, we're, we're back to the... Don't don't keep paperwork on stuff that you want to deny. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much true, yeah. Yeah. Very true. And, yeah, you only find out about things like that in the UK by complete accident. Or, should I say, idiot <laughs> bureaucrats leaving paperwork lying around that they're not supposed to. Well, yeah, but it's not just that. Um, you remember after the Snowden leaks? Yeah. Okay, so everybody's at the Guardian's office, right? Yeah. And I I don't know if you ever saw this, but I I saw something. It was just a panel they had for subscribers, and they were talking about... They were talking to Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald and and all the journalists who had talked to Edward Snowden. They were asking them, you know, what had happened to them. 
um, right up into the point where they had to take the hard drives and damage the shit out of them so that they were unusable. Yeah, the, you remember the show that? of brute force, yes. Right, where they were taking like iron angles and everything else and just beating the crap out of this stuff. Um, so they had been down for getting a fiber upgrade. Yeah. Okay. All of a sudden, the next day, that whole street was getting their fiber upgrade. Which, that's unusual in itself, but people were going to work and taking cabs to work, and the, the taxi driver would say to these people, um, so how much do you usually pay? You know, people they had never seen were driving them around, following them on the street. Yeah. Um, so that kind of thing kind of lets you know you're being spied on as well. Oh, yeah, and it's completely You know what I mean? That, that's That's completely... I don't know what that... That's got to be governmental incompetence there. No, 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 it's not incompetence. It's deliberate. They want it's, you to know you're being watched. That doesn't make any sense. It's the fear thing. Yeah, but... It's like, be, good, be, and, be good and do what we say, or we yeah, can make well, your life miserable. Right, but people behave differently when they're being watched. They change their routine. Um, uh, they change how they do things. You, you do have unconscious habits. Maybe, and when you're when you're being watched, you'll the it's it's like poker players and their tells. You're trying to keep something secret, and you know you're being watched. You will have ways of behaving when you know you're being watched that point out what it is you're trying to hide. And governments okay. aren't stupid. I mean, okay, they are stupid, but they have <laughs> <laughs> they have really smart people working for them. Uh, in case right. they know, they have mm, scores of people that are expert in reading body language, psychologists that can analyze your behavior, and yeah, they're they're deliberately putting obvious pressure on you to see what you do, hmm. <laughs> and that can give them uh, insight into what you've been doing. Um, How I you mean, react it's, under it's all pressure? Com- it's it's not accidental. Yeah, that that kind of that kind of stuff. It's completely deliberate. Ah, okay. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen every single time this sort of <laughs> thing comes about. Every time there's a scandal like this with the security agencies involved, you hear dozens of these stories from people. Oh well, they were obviously being watched because X happened and that had never happened before. It's like mm-hmm. yes, they wanted you to know. Hmm. They wanted to see what you do. I guess that kind of makes sense. It's kind of... It seems childish, though. You it, know what it I mean? Seems it seems childish, but yeah, as I say, there are reasons for doing it. Um, behavioral scientists could probably talk for weeks about this subject. But yeah, it's <laughs> it's the, yeah, Big Brother's watching you. What are you going to do about it? <sighs> There's and actually that, that's what really, governments do. I mean, yeah. There actually is no lot you can do about it. But um, <laughs> well, that's what Glenn Greenwald just—I mean—he's talked about it. He just kept behaving exactly the same way as he he had been, because well, to mean, do otherwise would give them tip-offs as to you know things he had been doing. Um, true. So, yeah. Um, speaking of. I guess predictive spying. Yeah. This isn't really 
a government story, but it it is a government story because it has its roots in the government. And I I found out about this through a Radio Lab episode. Okay, mm-hmm. um, we've talked a lot about Stingray on here, IMS eye catchers, and what they do. Um, this episode of Radio Lab was all about the person who had found out what an IMSI catcher was and how. Do you know who the first person who found out IMSI catchers were being used was? No. Do you know it was a, an American tax dodger? <laughs> Quite in, possibly. In yeah. prison with no access to a computer. Yeah. Yeah. So I find that really fascinating. But at the end of this whole big long story about this man and how he uncovered all this stuff which is really interesting and I should probably get the link and and stick it up in chat was a link to an episode called Eye in the Sky and Eye in the Sky is all about something called persistent surveillance systems Mm -hmm. and that's what this is about catching crimes the moment they happen small company capable of filming cities 24-7 could be the big brother future of American surveillance. Persistent Surveillance Systems is a system designed to monitor criminal activity by filming cities via circling planes at 10,000 feet. Air Force Institute of Technology professor Ross McNutt developed the idea to keep soldiers safe from explosives during the Iraq War. President Obama said recently that with more capabilities in the realm of surveillance and security comes a greater need for guidelines on when to use them. Big Brother is getting an upgrade. A small private firm in the U.S. has developed a surveillance system that could potentially capture every crime the moment it happens. Persistent Surveillance Systems is a system designed to monitor criminal activity by filming a chosen city from cameras in a circling plane flying above a given region. News.com AU reports that images are sent to a control center where people can see a real-time Google map type images of the selected location. When a suspected crime occurs, people can zero in on where it allegedly happened and can locate the people involved. Persistent surveillance systems formed by Ross McNutt has been used a few times by the U.S. and crimes have been solved in just minutes. McNutt thought up the idea over a few beers and wrote his original ideas on the back of a napkin. McNutt was teaching at the Air Force Institute of Technology at the time and wanted to help U.S. troops avoid being killed by IEDS, improvised explosive devices, during the war with Iraq in 2004. We developed the system quickly to get an initial capability within about 18 months. We have since spent the last eight years perfecting it, lowering the cost, and increasing the effectiveness, McNutt told News AU. The IEDS were killing many of our troops, and our commander asked that we see what we could do to help. The PPS system worked so well in protecting American soldiers that the Air Force has spent $1 billion improving and enhancing the system. The surveillance has worked well in cities with high crime rates such as Dayton, Ohio, where where at least 27,000 crimes are committed each year. PSS believes we will contribute to reducing the crime in Dayton by 20 to 30 percent, McNutt added. He said that a crime prevention, uh, he said that crime prevention and solving would total a yearly savings of 96 million to 144 million. The system was given a five day trial in 2012 and went over so well that it was voted to become permanent. When Dayton 
helps a public forum to debate using the system, just 75 people attended. A majority of people supported the idea, but a small group opposed using the device. The company told News AU that they currently have a $150 million proposal in place and have been in talks with cities like Baltimore, Philadelphia, Moscow, and London. They also signed a deal with a private client to help prevent drug cartel violence in Mexico. With more surveillance comes a concern for people's privacy, but McNutt said he has come up with policies which will help protect people from the invasion of their privacy. We have developed a whole host of privacy policies and procedures that protect people's privacies. That's ridiculous. That's his exact quote. That's ridiculous. In addition, we have designed the system to be limited to one pixel per person, which only allows us to barely see a person and track them to a car. We only support recorded crime investigation and ongoing criminal investigations, he said. Though he said if a criminal knows he's being watched, he may be less likely to commit a crime. If a criminal is worried about whether or not we're flying, at least he's thinking about whether or not he's going to get caught. And he's less likely to do the crime, he told CBS News in March. President Obama said recently with more capabilities in the realm of surveillance and security power comes the need for guidelines on how and when we use those powers. Uh, this places a special obligation on us to ask the tough questions about what we should do. So this is the link to the Radio Lab story. If you're at all interested in that. Um... Although I, I would make the comment that, it, that this kind of links back to the believing what spy people tell you. Um, this sort of surveillance was being done long before 2004. Well, right. Of course it was, but, you know, now and we know And they're just using it. him to go, look, I invented this shit. And of course. Well, I mean... Like, nah, it's been around longer it, than that. Oh, it has, but what I'm saying is, of course, now we're making this announcement, so now you know we're doing this stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now we want you to be aware that we're there. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I mentioned it earlier because it is one of the uh, more intriguing developments was the Aurora Project, and that was mm -hmm. what it was. It was a autonomous camera drone that can be set to loiter above a location and film everything that happens. Yeah, Take well, I think what kills me that's is, been is going, we don't even... That's been going on since the 80s. I mean, right, but yeah. we're still using blimps to do the same thing, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Aurora's a lovely little drone. I mean, yeah. It's solar-powered. <laughs> so it can it stay basically indefinitely wherever you put it. Mm -hmm. Unless it gets noticed, in which case it might be a good idea to move it. Yeah, well, yeah, especially in America. Um, so I'm going to read you something from 2006, and then I'm going to read you something from yesterday. AT&T Engineer. This is a headline from 2006, April 12, 2006. NSA built secret rooms in our facilities. DSF's case against AT&T has barely begun, yet it has already brought to light some fascinating details about the methods behind the NSA's alleged wiretapping abilities. 
Mark Klein, a retired AT&T engineer who is now participating in the case as a witness, has released a statement to the media in which he outlines many of the allegations that are currently under seal. Chief among them is that his claim that AT&T installed powerful traffic monitoring equipment in a secret room in their San Francisco switching office at behest of the NSA. In 2002, when I was working at an AT&T office in San Francisco, the site manager told me to expect a visit from the NSA agent, who was to interview a management-level technician for a special job. The agent came, and by chance I met him and directed him to the appropriate people. In January 2003, I, along with others, toured the AT&T Central Office in Folsom Street in San Francisco, actually three floors of an SBC building. There I saw a new room being built adjacent to the 4ESS switch room where the public's phone calls are routed. I learned that the person whom the NSA interviewed for the secret job was the person working here to install equipment in this room. The regular technician workforce was not allowed in the room. According to Klein, this room contained, among other things, a Naris STA 64,000 traffic analyzer into which all of AT&T's internet and phone traffic was routed. Klein himself helped wire the splitter box that made this possible. In addition to AT&T's own traffic, Klein alleges that the company also routed its peering links into the splitter, meaning that any traffic that passed through AT&T's own network could be scanned. Furthermore, San Francisco wasn't the only place such secret rooms were being built. Klein claims that AT&T offices in Seattle, San Jose, Los Angeles, and San Diego also have them. A map of the, N- the NSA's alleged surveillance technologies. Oh, actually, there's a, there's a link from a place called NSA Watch. So I can't even, don't even think I can access it. So what exactly is a NARIS STA-6400? It's hard to get precise details for obvious reasons, but NARIS does describe the system in general terms. So let's see if I can stick that link. Thank you. Um, others have done a bit more digging and claim that the system can analyze more than 10 billion bits of data per second and point out that the company sells its systems to governments worldwide. Saudi Tech, Telecom, and Telecom Egypt both use NARIS equipment to monitor and apparently block VOIP traffic in their countries, for instance, and they recently inked a similar deal with Shanghai Telecom. Given the massive scale of the spy operations in the U.S., and this is only one company, it's not yet clear if the NSA has partnered with other telecom firms. It's growing increasingly difficult to believe that this is truly targeted surveillance. This is what we believed in 2006. The equipment used in its vast scale, user interface data and phone calls. Much of the information that passes through their spy system must therefore be domestic rather than international in nature. It's possible that phone calls, for instance, that begin and end in the U.S. are simply passed through the system without being scanned. But if so, this must certainly tempt the NSA, which only has to tweak their settings to see all that new data. What is actually being monitored is still unclear, but it looks as though this trial could bring much of that to light. That was in 2006. So what was the headline in The Guardian last week, Barry? Did you see it? Uh, Don't think I saw it. About AT&T partnering with the NSA. Oh, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I just think that's funny. Well, yeah. I mean, we've talked about it before. I've of said course. in the UK, TCHQ mm-hmm. were in right at the start oh, yeah. of telecoms. Of and course. 
help develop the routing equipment. So to to think that governments haven't been spying on communications is kind of a joke. Since well, the original telecoms equipment, governments helped design. So yeah. Well, right. But what I'm saying is, I mean, I said everything's got a, approximately a five-year window. Yeah. I was kind of right. That story came out in 2006. In 2012, 13, that was yeah. when we really started seeing the the Snowden documents come out. Yeah. And that was when we started really seeing about them partnering with the telecoms. I, I don't think we had heard much about AT&T. Was it Sprint? We had heard a lot about the NSA partnering with. Then, then we started hearing about the Five Eyes. Much of that stuff, I actually believe, is true. Not so much all the other stuff. Yeah. But anyway, I just thought it was pretty funny. In 2006, we were just suspicious. We didn't really know that they took everything. Now we know they take everything. Uh, this is from ProPublica on August 15th. Today we reported that the National Security Agency's ability to capture internet traffic on United States soil has relied on its extraordinary decades-long partnership with a single company, the giant telecom AT&T. While it has long been known that American telecommunications companies work closely with the spy agency, the documents we've published, and that would be what they published that day, that the relationship with AT&T has been considered unique and especially productive. One document described it as highly collaborative, and another lauded the company's extreme willingness to help. By following breadcrumbs, we found that throughout the treasure trove of documents released by Snowden, we were able to prove a program called Fairview was the cover term for the agency's partnership in eight, with AT&T. We also found evidence that Verizon participates in the agency's smaller Stormview, Stormbrew program. Fairview defined... We started with the basics. A slide deck called Fairview Overview described the partnership between NSA special source operations and a corporate partner. We inferred that this Fairview partner was a single big U.S. telecom. There are only a handful of American operators at this scale, AT&T, Verizon, and Sprint, and internet backbone providers such as CenturyLink, Cognate Communications, and Level 3 Communications. The Cable Cut. Our best clue came from an internal NSA newsletter which contained an update about how data collection was restored after the Japanese earthquake in 2011. Um, on August 5th, 2011, collection of DNR and DNI traffic at the Fairview Cliffside Trans-Pacific Cable site resumed after being down for approximately five months. Collection operations at Cliffside had been down since March 11th, 2011 due to cable damage as a result of an earthquake off the coast of Japan. Several submarine cables near Japan were damaged after the earthquake. However, only one of them was restored on August 5th, 2011, according to Saratu Taria, Vice President of the Crisis Management, Management Planning Office at NTT Communications, the Japanese telecom that operates the Japan landing station for the cable. That restored cable is the northern leg of the Japan-slash-U.S. cable that is operated by AT&T in the United States, according to a federal communication filing. Although there are many partners in the consortium that share ownership with the Japan-U.S. cable, AT&T is the primary network 
operator of the cable and owns the Manchester, California cable landing point for the U.S.-Japan cable, according to FCC filings. Our next clue was some jargon we found in NSA glossary. Even the NSA has a hard time keeping track of all its code words, so it has a dictionary of terms. Inside the dictionary, we found an entry that described a Fairview program using terminology we hadn't heard before, SNRC, Segnora. DNI access from Fairview's partner, DNI Backbone, which includes OC192 and 10GE peering circuits. The partner has provided a circuit view of the forecasted and equipped 10GE and OC192 peering circuits at 8SRC as of March 2009. A little sleuthing revealed a 1996 article in the publication Network World at which AT&T describes its internet hubs as service node routing complexes, or SNRCs. Former AT&T employees Jennifer Rexford, who is now a professor at Princeton University, and Joel Gottlieb, who now runs his own consulting service, confirmed for us that SNRC was an AT&T-specific jargon. We also found out that AT&T had included the term SNRC in a glossary of technical terms it submitted for a government contract. Elsewhere, a diagram of Fairview data flows. The term common backbone, or CBB, is used to describe the Fairview partner's internet backbone. The term CPB is also specific to AT&T, according to Rexford and Stephen Belvoyan, another former AT&T employee, now a professor at Columbia University. A network map of Fairview shows eight peering link router complexes. A 2009 AT&T network map shows eight backbone nodes with peering at roughly the same locations. I don't really need to go on, right? No. They, They can't even hide it. Yeah. They're so merged when with it, each it's other. That, when it's that big, you don't you, you hide it in plain sight, kind of thing, and wait, and, and eventually people notice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty bad. It's it's they they don't try to hide it. They don't bother to hide it. They were like, "Yes, government, here, let me do this for you, government." It's it's pretty bad. Yeah. It's really, really bad. Well, I say in some ways it was worse in the UK because originally um, all telecommunications were done by British Telecom, which was the national operator. It was owned by the government. Right. So you can imagine how closely our, our, our stuff has been jacked since day one, oh, yeah. as you say. So. Well, I mean, it's. I, I think it's always been surveilled. It's always been watched. Um, we're just more aware of it now. What's disturbing to me is what we don't know. Yeah. Like I said, everything has about a five, six-year window on it before we find out. You know what I mean? Um, and and we know that's true because you can just look at how time passes and, and look back to other stories and, and see, compare them to one another, and, and you find another story really emerges. Yeah. Um, what do they know now? You know, we know they're jacked into Skype. We know that the NSA says when they put people on the no-fly list, this this is just like the NSA, the TSA, all of them say when somebody goes on the no-fly list or when they're picked, they're hand-picked by a selector, do you know how they pick them? They, 
they get your Facebook super cookie. Yeah. They look at it. And that's how a selector decides whether you're worth pursuing in all that collect it all shit. So it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. Which is one reason, honest, Gav, why I look at all the goth model sites on Facebook. <laughs> so then when they look at the metadata, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's looking at pictures of women all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think super cookies are a really interesting problem, only they're yeah. they're not... They're not interested. They're not interesting to people who don't understand what they do. Well, I always love it when people bring out the thing. Oh, look at all this! You know, they give you a link to the program that lets you look at it, what data mm-hmm. they've got, and people are like, "Oh my God, look at all the data Facebook have got on me!" And I click on it and go, "Oh, they don't seem to have any data on me. Oh, I wonder how that could have happened." <laughs> um, it's because I, I don't go anywhere to... interesting when I'm on Facebook. <laughs> you know, it used to be that conventional wisdom was you didn't say who you actually were on the internet. Yeah. Right? That, that was that was the way to keep yourself safe. And now everybody's insisting on it. Well, if they're insisting on it, it's kind of obvious they're partnering with the government, right? It's all well, part of yeah. the surveillance thing. Collect it all, take it all, capture it all, hold it all, pray we build a computer smart enough to sift through it all. Um, My Google this, metadata is also pretty empty. You'll be unsurprised to learn. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not shocked. You know what they're up to. No, I just don't needlessly throw all my information on every website I come across. Well, um, I, I think people are leaky. Yeah. Yeah, super cookies really help with that. If you put your data anywhere, mm-hmm. a super cookie is going to hold it. And I mean, that's not something you can just delete. No. That's why I'm saying I really find that stuff interesting. That stuff follows you from year to year wherever you go. Yeah. You know, it's based on algorithms and how you do things. I mean, for God's sake, how your mouse touches a pixel is as unique as a fingerprint. And most people don't know that. They don't know that everything they do leaks data. Yeah. So it's just interesting to me. Okay. I noticed that uh, Thomas put this link in here, and I actually had it in the show notes about the Postal Service audit. (laughs) Copy of Postal Service audit shows the extent of mail surveillance. In what experts say is the first acknowledgement of how the United States Postal Service Mail Surveillance Program for National Security Investigations is used, the service's internal watchdog found that inspectors failed to follow key safeguards in the gathering and handling of classified information. The overall program, called Mail Covers, allows postal employees working on behalf of law enforcement agencies to record names, return addresses, and other information from the outside of letters and packages before they are delivered to the home of a person suspected of criminal activity. The information about national security mail covers amid heated public debate over the proper limits on government surveillance was contained in an audit conducted by the Postal Service's Inspector General last year. Although much of the information was public, sections about the national security mail covers were heavily redacted. An unredacted copy of the report, which is an interesting read, was provided to a national security researcher in response to a Freedom of Information Act request. Uh, 
this year. The researcher, who goes by the single legal name Psy, shared the report with the New York Times. In a June 2008 letter to Psy, the Postal Inspection Service, the Postal Service's law enforcement arm, said it could not confirm or deny the existence of the National Security Mail Cover Program, even though it was mentioned in the audit. The Postal Service does not provide public comment on matters which could potentially involve national security interests, Paul J. Kren, spokesman, said in an email. The Postal Inspection Service did tell auditors that it had begun training its employees on handling classified materials. Experts said the unredacted report was the first to provide public details, although minimal, about the national security mail covers. The number of requests appeared small, about 1,000 from 2011 to 2013, and the report did not say which federal agencies made them. It did disclose that the FBI, the IRS, the DEA, and the Department of Homeland Security were the largest overall users of mail covers. These agencies declined to provide the Times with the data on their use of mail covers in response to a Freedom of Information Act request filed last year. The redacted audit was posted May 2014 on the website of the Postal Service's Officer Inspector General, even though Postal Service managers said the report should be exempted from public disclosure because it could compromise investigations. So I'm not even going to read the rest of it. I'm just going to say I think the mail covers program is like the National Security Letters program. It's to provide a form of legitimacy to stuff they've already done and been doing to make it sound more legal than it actually is. Yeah. Yeah, which isn't really a shock. I haven't read it, but I would assume a shitload of this mail monitoring will be the IRS. Of course it will. Because, yeah, they they, want to know what you're doing with your money if they're not getting enough. So, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And this and is if the you're last fund. Lots and lots of bank letters. They want to know about it. <laughs> of course, and it's not just bank letters. I mean, no. if you're getting an ungodly amount of mail, they want to know where your stuff's coming from and whether you're paying your sales tax and all that fun stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it really is an an interesting way to figure out what people are doing with their money. And I agree with you, although I would think some. Some of the DEA requests would be interesting, but yeah, who knows? And this is kind of the last story for the evening because, you know, the Southwest is apparently not a place you want to be anymore. Judge gives okay to uranium mine at Grand Canyon. In June, the Grand Canyon was named one of the most endangered places in America by the National Trust for Historic Preservation but the designation came two months too late to possibly influence U.S. District Court Judge David Campbell. In April, he denied a request by the Havaspuri tribe, Havaspuri tribe and a coalition of conservation groups to halt new uranium mining next to the Grand Canyon National Park, just six miles from the Grand Canyon South Rim. We're very disappointed with the ruling by Judge Campbell in the Canyon Mine case, said Havaspui Chairman Rex Tisali. We believe that the National Historic Preservation Act requires the Forest Service to consult with us and other affiliated tribes before they let mining companies damage Red Butte 
Red Butte, one of our most sacred traditional cultural properties. He said that the Havasbui Tribal Council would appeal the decision. The Havasbui Tribe had joined a coalition of conservation groups, including the Grand Canyon National Trust, the Center for Biological Diversity, the Sierra Club, to challenge a decision by the U.S. Forest Service to permit Energy Fuels Incorporated, a Canadian mining firm that develops uranium and vanadium properties in the U.S., to reopen the mine without formally consulting with the tribal authorities or updating an obsolete federal environmental review that is nearly 30 years old. The coalition warns that the mining operation threatens wildlife, including endangered species such as the California condor, as well as the tribal cultural values. Toxic uranium mining waste, they say, can contaminate the aquifers and streams that maintain the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River. We're not worried about rivers, are we? Geologists have warned that cleaning up such contamination would be next to impossible. The aquifers that feed the Grand Canyon are located thousands of feet below the surface. Steve Martin, a former superintendent of the Grand Canyon National Park, said uranium is a special concern because it is both a toxic heavy metal and a source of radiation. I worry about the uranium escaping into the local water because more than a third of the canyon species would be affected if the water quality suffered. Uh, according to a 2011 Environmental Environment America report, Grand Canyon at risk, uranium mining doesn't belong to our national treasures. Uranium mining, which often requires vast open pits, spreads radioactive dust through the air and leaks radioactivity and toxic chemicals into the environment, is among the riskiest industrial activities in the world. Every uranium mine ever operated in the United States has required some degree of toxic waste cleanup, and the worst have sickened dozens of people, contaminated miles of rivers and streams, and required the cleanup of dozens of acres of land. I'm sorry, hundreds. Okay. After several decades of reduced activity due to depressed mines, uranium mining is making a comeback, including on the edges of one of our nation's most treasured wild places, the Grand Canyon. So, yeah. There we go. Like I said, I, I they, kind of they'll think... be starting to do new T-shirts at the Grand Canyon, you know, in the visitor center. I came to the Grand Canyon, and all I got was an extra head. <laughs> oh, you know what? They can do. Um, what was the fish from The Simpsons? The one that had like three or four eyes. They can do T-shirts <laughs> of that fish. Yeah, which would be pretty interesting. But yeah, uh, uranium and vanadium, highly mm-hmm. sought after. So it's going to happen. doesn't well, matter what the environmentalists say. I know. Industry needs it, so it's going to get dug up. Mm, I know. I know. It's just kind of... I think what kind of makes me sad is, is here we are. We're in 2015. We haven't found a better way of dealing with, you know, uranium contamination than the way we've done it for 30 years. To me, that's kind of the sad part. Otherwise, I don't... I don't really have a huge problem with it. I have a problem they didn't ask. Well, the the, the main issue is what was said in the stories. They tend to Wait, do it open cast. Right. And that means all the dust goes up in the air and it comes back down again. Um, and when it's a uranium mine, funnily enough, part of that dust will be uranium. So, yeah. If they didn't yeah. do it open cast, uh, probably going to be less of a problem. Well, you know, I don't understand why they're not. Cost. 
Right. It's, it's, okay. It's, so it's cheaper it's, just ripping the top off and digging down. So on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have any other better way to put it, but if you liked Fight Club, you understand exactly what that meant. Yeah. Um. So, I, I guess that's it for the evening. Um. Advert. Advert. <laughs> Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. AmmoSeek.com Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you in two weeks.